Hello, everyone, and welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. My name is Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we have another history-filled episode for you today. But before we go into detail there, we need to remind you of where you're going to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting platforms. And that role lies with Emily. So why don't you tell them? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NTHuntPodcast. And you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to check us out, subscribe, rate us. Feel free to talk to us on the Twitter and the Instagram. <laughs> and be sure to tell us your thoughts, ask any questions. Uh, we like hearing from you guys. It's been great to hear from you so far. So look forward to continuing it. We've really appreciated all the support you've given us so far in our a short amount of time that we've been on the air with you guys, but we've learned very quickly something that probably isn't a surprise to us, Emily, as super fans of these movies, that there is a massive national treasure loving community online. And we are just proud and happy to be able to engage with you all. If yes. you if you have been following us on social media, you'll see we've already started sharing pictures from our national treasure hunt, our trip to Washington, D.C. that we took in 2015. And we're looking forward to continuing to share that content and so much more with you pretty much on a daily basis. It's whenever I don't feel like doing other stuff, I'm usually on our Twitter account. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah, for sure. Um, so new episodes are coming your way every other Wednesday, and we hope you continue to check us out. So at this point, you've heard us do, I, I kind of want to say a little bit of everything, talking about the plot of the film, talking about the production, comparing it to different adventure movies or books with the Da Vinci Code recently. Today we're taking a step back, uh, sort of something reminiscent of our second episode, which involved the history portrayed in the National Treasure film. Today we're going to go for a deep dive into one particular historical component of the first National Treasure film, and that deep dive is going to discuss the Founding Fathers and, of course, the Declaration of Independence. We're not going to steal it. I feel like I just need to clarify. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> the declaration? No, we're not going to steal that. I, I wish, but also don't because if any government officials are listening, which because I know plenty of them listen to this podcast, <laughs> um, we are not going to steal the Declaration of Independence. But, Aubrey, you found out a little bit about what a founding father was uh, in preparation <laughs> for this podcast, did you not? I did. And so if any of my former history teachers happen to be listening to this, I must apologize in advance because clearly my memory of our lessons didn't stick as well as I thought that it had. As it turns out, the term founding father is a bit more of an amorphous term than I had thought. I will be completely honest. When we started prepping for this episode, I erroneously thought the founding father was someone who wrote or signed the Declaration of Independence, but it turns out, and Emily is, looks like she's about to laugh at me right now, um, before I tell you what a founding father is, I'm going to put Emily on the spot. What did you think a founding father was? Oh, I definitely thought they were just people that signed the Declaration of Independence as well. I'm just giving you a hard time. I thought the same thing. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes me feel a little better. As it turns out, a founding father played some role, uh, usually a prominent role, in uniting the 13 colonies here in America. They played a role in leading the revolution against Great Britain, and then, of course, establishing the government here in the United States following the revolution. Some of these founding fathers did, in fact, sign the declaration. So, Emily, we're not completely wrong. Got that so, part. Exactly. But some also signed other documents, such as the Articles of Confederation. Some signed the U.S. Constitution. Others signed a combination of these documents. And there are still more documents that we'll reference throughout today's episode that will give you another look into what some of these founders might have been up to while we are establishing our, our nation here. 
So in terms of how to structure this episode, Em, I, I want to call back to our second episode where we kind of went into detail on several key points. In this case, we'll go into detail on several key founding fathers that make an appearance, at least notionally, in the first National Treasure film. Uh, we'll discuss why they're relevant to the film in as much of a chronological order based on the plot as we can. But then we'll also talk about their role in establishing the United States of America and these founding documents. And then I think what we should do is end the episode with another rapid fire round. So yes, the, the, <laughs> the folks that we'll talk about in the rapid fire round maybe had a smaller role in the film or I don't know, they were a little less interesting when we were researching them. I dare say. <laughs> a little bit. You'll find out that some of them actually are very interesting. I have a fun surprise coming up for you, Aubrey, uh, towards the end of this, which is particularly interesting. I'm scared. Okay, well, before we get started with our in-depth part of this episode, I know, Emily, you wanted to make a quick note, a recognition about some of the figures that we're going to be talking about today. Indeed. So... We are going to be talking about historical figures from American history, and we go into this, and we went into our research, and we go into this discussion knowing that some, if not many, of these figures that we are going to be talking about have controversial or checkered histories, or even just parts of their histories that aren't so great. And... While we're going to be focusing on them in the context of the movie National Treasure and in the context of what they did in terms of establishing the United States of America, we do want to note that we are aware that there are controversial things about these people and that we might have only learned, you know, one side of some of their stories in our history classes. However, if you have more questions or want to, you know, learn further about some of the um, more controversial parts of some of these historical figures' lives, I would recommend just doing a quick Google search, and I'm sure that you can find many things. And we, of course, will be open to discussing what we talk about in this episode as well as anything that you guys come across on this topic, controversial or otherwise, on our various social media platforms. So I just wanted to make sure that we at least acknowledge that before starting. Point well taken, Em. And as you all know now, I'm on our Twitter all of the time. So reach out to us with stuff and we'll definitely engage in conversations with you all. So with that context, the first person we're going to go into a bit of detail on here today is the one and only... George Washington. So in the film National Treasure, as you might recall, Ben's grandfather lists George Washington as a member of the Freemasons when he's telling young Ben Gates the story of the Templar treasure. So Emily, what can you tell us about the non-movie George Washington? Well, the non-movie George Washington, I would like to point out, was a member of the Freemasons. He Ooh. became he became a Master Mason, which is the highest basic rank in the fraternity of Freemasonry, at the young age of twenty one. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. So he was he was up in those ranks from a very young age. I know that is not something we were doing at the age of twenty one. No, but, we were planning you know. our national treasure hunt in DC. <laughs> That's true. That's what we were doing. We were not joining secret societies, but, you know, more power to George Washington for doing that. So I have to say that I didn't need to do as much research as I thought I would on this figure, mainly because of my obsession with Hamilton. Like the musical? The musical Hamilton. Because they talk about George Washington a lot. And as you know, Aubrey, since I know that you recently watched it for the first time. I did you are now aware that George Washington was a main character in the story. He so was. a lot of these facts you can also find in at various points in Hamilton, just as a fun kind of aside to throw in there. And if you want to watch Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, you might as well follow it up with National Treasure 1 and 2, which are also on Disney+. Plus. True. Disney Plus is not sponsoring this podcast, but you know <laughs> we wouldn't be opposed. So hit us up, Disney. 
whenever you get a chance. Anyway, George Washington was born in the great state of Virginia, and he became what is known as a surveyor. Now I have to admit, I had to look this up because I was unsure of what this was. <laughs> it, as far as I can tell, means that he went around and determined locations and boundaries of various properties. People can, still do this today. Yeah, but I can see how that occupation would lend itself really well for his next big job, which everyone knows him from, being in the military. Oh, yeah. And apparently he was really good at math. So really? this whole surveying thing mm -hmm. and the military stuff came very naturally to him. He actually had no previous military experience before he was called up into the ranks. But in 1752, he was made commander of the Virginia militia. So big step from no experience at all to commander. And he fought in the French and Indian War. He also, as we probably all know, served two terms as the first president of the United States from the year 1789 to 1797. And an interesting note, which I pulled from Hamilton, I will admit, is that during the run of this presidential campaign, he was running against none other than John Adams. And at the time, the person who came in second in terms of the presidential race, was actually made the vice president. So someone who might have opposed a lot of your views was made your vice president, which is a very interesting way for things to have happened. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it's a, huh. an interesting system. I think it worked out okay for George Washington, but I'm not sure how it would work out nowadays. So as anyone who has seen or listened to Hamilton also knows, he set up the first presidential cabinet and the two main figures that he had in that were Thomas Jefferson, who was the Secretary of State, and none other than Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of the Treasury. I gotta say, I'm kind of incapable of visualizing Thomas Jefferson now without imagining someone rapping based that's, on Hamilton. That's fair. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, um, tell us uh, once and for all, did George Washington have a role in the preparation, signing, etc., of the document of the hour, which all National Treasure <laughs> fans care most about, which is the Declaration of Independence? So, excitingly, George Washington served as a delegate to the First Continental Congress in 1774. But he was already commander-in-chief of the Continental Army by the time that the Second Continental Congress came about. And as we know, the Second Continental Congress is when the Declaration of Independence was signed. So actually, during the signing in Philadelphia of the Declaration of Independence, he and his troops were out hanging in New York doing some battle. So he unfortunately did not actually have time to sign the Declaration of Independence. That, that kind of makes sense. So can you talk a little bit more about his role as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army then? Yes. So it's actually interestingly said that he was better as a general than as a military strategist. So his initial role in the military was more of this uh, strategist position. And I guess he, you know, the math skills didn't quite didn't quite cut it for that. <laughs> but as a general, he was really uniquely capable of keeping the colonial army together, even when they were struggling. He is actually particularly well known for this kind of leadership, especially during the harsh winter of 1777 to 1778 at Valley Forge, which, fun fact, I go to all the time, as it is, like, not far from where I live. And, and we went far together. From where we went to college. Exactly. Yeah. We went together during our time at Ursinus. Shout out. Yeah, and a lot of George Washington mentions all over Valley Forge. So if you want to know more about him, feel free to check, Take a trip. check that out. <laughs> Take a trip. Yeah, take a trip to Valley Fords. It's a great place. So just to kind of wrap us up here with George Washington, quick fun fact. He actually lived in New York and Philadelphia, obviously not literally in the same day, but both places during his presidency. And he eventually signed a bill in order to establish a permanent United States capital, which was along the Potomac River. Now, the city was actually named Washington, D.C. in honor of him. 
Now, this totally makes sense, but I did not know this. Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. Um, but in the spirit of signing things, he also signed the Continental Association, which I'm not going to lie, I had not heard of that. I don't recall hearing of the Continental Association in my high school history classes, but I mm -hmm. learned that this was a system created by the first Continental Congress in 1774, per Wikipedia, gotta say, for implementing a trade boycott with Great Britain. He also signed the U.S. Constitution and headed up the committee that drafted the Constitution. So very much a founding father in his own right. And finally, to wrap up the segment with my favorite thing. So that would be a quote, I'm guessing. That would be a quote from none other than George Washington, a true founding father. So he made his first farewell address after the end of his presidency, where he actually set the example for other presidents to come, both in making farewell addresses as well as in what he said during his farewell address. And if you that has seen Hamilton will know this is a particularly moving part of the musical. But I just want to leave you with these words of his. He said, quote, in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. And I mean, wow, if that's not a man that recognizes his strengths and weaknesses and sets a good example for what a president of the United States should be, I, I don't know what is. That just some really powerful stuff there from George Washington. Thank you so much for that, Emily. Why don't you tell us the next founding father that we're going to deep dive into today? The next founding father is none other than Benjamin Franklin. He is all over the place in the National Treasure movie. Really, oh, yeah. he's he's basically a main character. I yeah, mean, without he's he's as much of a character as you can be in a movie without physically making an appearance. And as much of a main character as you can be while being dead. That too. Good point. But he was referenced multiple times. Most notably, he was referenced in relation to the Mrs. Silence Do Good Letters, which we mentioned before and we'll be doing a further deep dive into in a future episode. And he was also, as we talked about before, mentioned in terms of the etching on the back of the $100 bill, as well as the ocular device, which they found, which, as we know, are those weird bifocal glasses things, which basically became like a key plot point of the entire film. Yes, so, Aubrey, but... can you tell us a little bit more about Benjamin Franklin as a person? I can. I can. And it's funny because when I think Founding Father, I think Benjamin Franklin comes to mind for me. Hmm. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's from growing up so close to Philadelphia. Maybe, I mean, you did too. Maybe you could relate. But, yeah. So, Ben Franklin was actually born in Boston, so hmm. another place that our film takes us to at, at one point or another. And Ben Franklin actually spent much of his life living and working in Philadelphia, despite not being born there. He was really, I guess, the best way to describe him, if you recall learning about him in your history books, was really that he's a jack of all trades. And I think maybe if you were in middle school or high school and you learned about Franklin, you might have heard about him as an inventor or as a scientist or as a diplomat or as someone who was a postmaster or he literally did kind of everything. <laughs> he, he filled a lot of shoes. He wore a lot day. of hats. Yeah. So different clothing but metaphors, but we get the point. <laughs> We get the point. I guess, though, I would say that he's probably most well-known universally for his work in printing, inventing, and then, of course, public affairs. So something, Emily, that I think you might find interesting, given the fact that you live in Philadelphia now, is the fact that Ben Franklin played a really pivotal role within the Philadelphia community. So mm -hmm. he helped to establish Philly's first lending library. As well as its fire company and police patrol. He even had a role in establishing the college that would later become the University of Pennsylvania. Hey. Yeah. Very cool stuff. Way For to go, Ben Franklin. He, he, he played a really, he was a, commu a community member, I guess we could say. Mm, um, true. Beyond that, he was the Philadelphia postmaster and then was appointed later the joint postmaster for all of the British colonies in America. He was appointed to this position by Great Britain, 
but he was removed after he was seen as too sympathetic to the colonies, which I think is kind of funny. But based on this experience, he was then appointed as the first postmaster general of the United States after the revolution. Of course, in retirement, he then focused on science, inventing all those famous electricity experiments you probably the heard the key about. and the kite. Oh, yeah. So that's, a, I guess, a little bit of a brief history of his life. But of course, we're here to talk about his role in the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution. So maybe one of the reasons I thought of him as a founding father through and through is because Ben Franklin was one of about five people who helped to draft the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and he was a signer of the Declaration from Pennsylvania at the ripe older age of 70. When you look at the ages of the signers, he's actually up there compared to many of the other ones. I just will point that out. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was a younger one, and I was going to be like, wow. No. no, he was not. But there is more to Ben Franklin than this Declaration of Independence story. He did have more of a role in the American Revolution than you might remember from your history class. So in 1754, so we'll backtrack a little bit, he was the writer of something you might have heard of called the Albany Plan. We won't go into detail on the Albany plan, but it was said that this plan paved the way for the Articles of Confederation, which, as a quick refresher, was sort of like the first American Constitution back in 1781. Beyond this, Ben Franklin also testified against the Stamp Act in 1766, and he served as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress. His work as a diplomat traces back to the fact that he was sent to France to ask them for help in the Revolutionary War. So as someone like Emily, who is a big Hamilton fan, knows, or anyone who recently took a history class, the French played a pretty big role in the American Revolution. And so that had a lot to do with Ben Franklin. He also in regards to this diplomacy work, negotiated and drafted the 1783 Treaty of Paris that eventually ended the Revolutionary War. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't actually either. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, he was that diplomat that was playing that key, you know, back and forth role between these allied figures of the the colonies and France. And, you know, France was almost in this position between the colonies in Great Britain. So um, so there you have it. And, and I will say that a little bit later in 1787, Franklin was also a Pennsylvania delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He was the oldest delegate there and was a very vocal advocate for the Constitution. So do you think we have time for a couple of fun facts? I think we always have time for fun facts, Aubrey. <laughs> That's fair. So this extremely interesting character, non-character, national treasure, whatever you want to call him, there are a couple of interesting facts that I found particularly interesting about him. The first one is that he had three children, and the first of his three children, William Franklin, was the last colonial governor of New Jersey until the year 1776. And now, Emily, what does the year 1776 scream out to you? Declaration of Independence. Exactly. So independence, peak revolution, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Ben Franklin's, you know, Mr. America, basically, his son William was a British loyalist during the revolution and ended up, yeah, and he ended up dying in exile in England following the revolution. Can you believe that? Oh my gosh, tough love, tough love, man. Family tension. I mean, if there was a, I don't want to say Real Housewives of the American Revolution kind of <laughs> kind of show, this would be peak drama, I think. Indeed it would be. Wow. And, and honestly, the more I think about that, the more I feel like that show needs to happen. Yeah, great... maybe on Drunk History. Drunk history, there you go. So my second interesting fact is a little bit more on point in terms of our signing of important documents piece of this conversation. Ben Franklin is the only founding father to have signed the following four key pieces of documentation in the establishment of the United States of America. So he signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. He signed the Treaty of Alliance with France in 1778. 
He signed the Treaty of Paris, which again established peace with Great Britain in 1783. And of course, he signed the U.S. Constitution in 1787. So the only founding father to have signed all four of those documents. Wow, that's a lot of signing for one person to do. Probably had hand cramps. I was going to say, must have must have been a lot of work there. It's, it's a good thing he didn't have the extravagant John Hancock signature, or else he probably would have been in pain. Mm, true. <laughs> um, okay, so that wraps up our discussion on Ben Franklin. So we will move right along to Mr. Paul Revere. Now, you might be wondering if you are a national treasure faithful what paul revere has to do with this movie he is much less of a character than ben franklin is but he's still a very important person in american history who is referenced by the writers in the film at the beginning of the movie ben's grandfather once again lists paul revere as a freemason so again this is during the telling of the story of the templar treasure and now fast forward to basically the very end of the film, the fake clue that Ben and his father give to Ian relates directly to Paul Revere because he was the person that rode to Lexington to warn of the British attack. Of course, in the film, our protagonists see the lantern in the treasure antechamber room and in order to get rid of Ian because he's probably going to shoot them, Patrick claims that this lantern is a reference to Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. So, once again, Em, what you going to tell us about real-life Paul Revere? Well, much like Benjamin Franklin, he was born in Boston. Okay. Interestingly enough. And he became an apprentice to his father as a silversmith by the ripe old age of 13, much as his father had done before him. Wait, 13? 13. He dropped out of school in order to, you know, go into an apprenticeship with his father to learn the craft of silversmithing. Thank you for that. I just want to, for context, folks, I'm pretty sure 13 is like eighth grade. That is insane to me. But go on. <laughs> so probably the most important fact that I found about him, for me being who I am, I don't think our listeners know this about me, but he was... <laughs> A Scottish Freemason, and he eventually became the Grandmaster of Freemasons of the Freemasons of Massachusetts. Now, this is particularly important to me because it's calling to his Scottish heritage, my Scottish heritage. It's very, very important. I thought it was particularly cool. Though he was a Scottish Freemason, as I mentioned, his masonry place... <laughs> Which we'll learn the proper name of when we do our deep dive on the Freemasons. Don't worry. We haven't hit that point in learning yet. It was we intentional. will get there, friends. Yes. We're yeah, just peaking to show your you how far we have to go. Uh, even though he was not in Scotland, he actually was in Massachusetts. He was also part of another kind of society, a member of the Sons of Liberty. Now, the Sons of Liberty was formed in 1765 as a group of militants, you know, for the revolution. And it's really interesting because, you know, I mentioned that he was a silversmith. And from that point forward, so from the point he joined the Sons of Liberty forward, the engravings that he produced as a silversmith became more and more politically themed. So, for example, one of his engravings depicted the arrival of the British troops in 1768. And possibly the one that he's most well known for is the engraving he did of a famous drawing by Henry Pelham in order to depict the Boston Massacre. So I have to say, I've not seen these engravings, but I definitely want to go look them up and maybe we'll post some pictures of them um, on the Instagram and Twitter on the social media platforms so that everybody can have a look at some of the cool cool stuff that he you know, yeah. did. That, that can definitely be arranged for sure. Um, that's a great idea. Um, but I, I think the question on everyone's minds here, now that you've answered the fact that Paul Revere was a Freemason and he was Scottish, as you so eloquently pointed out. What role did he have in the Declaration of Independence? So his role in the Declaration of Independence was non-existent, really. Really? <laughs> now, I would like to note that it's possible that he helped to save the lives slash prevent 
the arrest of John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who did go on to sign the Declaration of Independence. So baller move, really, by Paul Revere here. What I'm talking about in terms of him potentially saving the lives of these people has to do with his role in the revolution. So as I mentioned, he was a member of the Sons of Liberty. But what he's really most famous for, what we all know him for, is his midnight ride on April the 18th of the good year 1775. The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Yes, so he and a man, apparently, named William Dawes, rode to Lexington to meet John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Now, apparently, the original intel that they got was that those two men were going to be arrested. However, it was later determined that the number of troops that were being sent over was actually way too many for it to be about an arrest of only two men. So they figured there must have been a battle plan. So that kind of goes back to my point about him possibly helping save the lives slash prevent the arrest of John Hancock and Samuel Adams. It's a stretch, but we'll go with it because it was something that, you know, was believed at a time. Regardless, he told us that the British were coming. Right. He did indeed tell us that the British were coming. And because of Paul Revere, the Minutemen were ready the next morning in Lexington for the first battle of the Revolutionary War. So he totally had a role in kicking off the war. So that's pretty, in your words, baller. Baller. It's a, it's a founding fatherish move, gotta say. Yep. It's not signing the declaration, but it's, it's up there. It's very, now, Aubrey, it's foundery and it's fathery. Found, it is foundry and it is fathery. <laughs> well and eloquently stated, Aubrey. Thank you. Now, I have a pretty fun fact here, which I think you will actually enjoy a lot. I certainly enjoyed it. So two years after he became an apprentice of his father at the age of 15, he was part of the first group of people to ring the newly cast bells at Christ Church. Now, Christ Church is located in the north of Boston and is alternatively called the Old North Church. So he actually rang the bells at the place where the signal was sent out on the night that he did his ride. So really coming back full circle, Paul Revere in his lifetime. Pretty cool stuff. Big fan of full circle moments, so. Full circle moments, exactly. Speaking of full circle moments, a man that was involved with many full circle moments in the movie was Charles Carroll. Now, in the movie, you'll remember that in the very beginning, he was the one that passed on the first clue to Thomas Gates as he was dying. (laughs) He launched the hunt for the Templar treasure with this fated act. And he is related to the house, actually, that Ben and Abigail buy at the end of the film, which I forget about every single time. So it's what I'm here for. Yeah, it's what I'm here for. So, Aubrey, can you tell us a little bit more about the great Charles Carroll? I can. And I'm really excited to do this because he's the only founding father that we talk about today that made a physical appearance in the National Treasure movie. So, of course, we have Ben Franklin, who is mentioned a ton in the movie. If he had a Twitter, his mentions would be blowing up right now. But Charles Carroll actually makes a physical appearance. And this is the last deep dive we're going to go into today. So bear with us here. I actually think this is probably one of the most interesting things that I learned throughout prepping for this episode. So hope you enjoy it as well. In short, Charles Carroll is probably one of the most interesting founding fathers that you've never heard of. I venture a guess to say that you might have only ever heard of him if you've watched the National Treasure movie. Or that watched is accurate. It. Yeah, watched it recently, right? So as it turns out, Charles Carroll was born in Annapolis, Maryland. But early in life, he did not spend a lot of time there. He was shipped off to France to get a Jesuit education starting at a very young age. This education actually resulted in him being fluent in five different languages. So way more impressive than than me. I don't know about you. You're Emily. fluent in what, too? I used to be fluent in two. Now it's like one and a half. Mm, that's about where I am, too. 
Yeah, so even combined, we're not as talented as Charles Carroll. It's also interesting, though, because he was the wealthiest man in the colonies when the revolution started. Hmm. Right? It feels like someone you would have heard about in history class. Yeah. (laughs) So... He was wealthy because he had inherited a massive estate in Maryland. It was a 10,000-acre estate, which I will note had about 1,000 slaves on that estate. So, you know, we want to talk about his role in the Declaration of Independence and in the Revolution. But I do want to note, fast forward just a second, because I think this is interesting. After the Revolutionary War, he did serve as a Maryland state senator and then subsequently as the first U.S. senator from the state of Maryland. Oh, wow. So again, right? Pretty interesting dude. Pros and cons to him, but I think objectively fairly interesting and probably more interesting that, again, you've never heard of him before. Yes. Now, Aubrey, tell us the question that we are dying to have answered. What was his role in the Declaration of Independence? I kind of wanted you to say, did he steal the Declaration of Independence? But of course... No, but he did have a role. As it it turns out, Mr. Charles Carroll, known in Declaration of Independence land as Charles Carroll of Carrollton, he actually arrived too late to vote on the Declaration, but he did sign it. He was a signer of the Declaration from the state of Maryland at the age of 38. So he was older than me. He really, he squeezed his way in there with the signing of it. Yeah. Too late to vote, but made it in time for the important part. Absolutely. And it turns out that he was the wealthiest and most highly educated signer of the document, which, based on that pedigree that we just discussed, I'm not really surprised. Mm-mm. So his, his role in the revolution, though, I think is a lot more interesting than his signing of the declaration. As it, yeah, yeah. So as it turns out, while he was an early supporter of independence from Great Britain, the state that he was from, Maryland, was not. They were way more hesitant. But he actually had early roles in drumming up this eagerness to to declare independence in a couple of different ways. First and foremost, he pulled a very Ben Franklin move here, and he wrote under the pseudonym First Citizen, so not as cool as Mrs. Silence Do Good, but First citizen, there we go. Non-binary, so. Right, exactly. It's true. So he did this writing in the Maryland Gazette and had these spirited newspaper debates with people who were more anti-independence. But Hmm. once his identity was revealed, once he was revealed to be first citizen, it, I guess, kind of, maybe I'm speculating here, but perhaps unintentionally gained him some notoriety. Sure. He did then subsequently play a role in some of the Tea Party protests that happened in Annapolis in 1774. So we think of Tea Party in Boston, right? Yeah. Um, but apparently they, these protests were held elsewhere as well. So he had a role in the burning of a tea-containing ship that was destined for Maryland during this time. All that wasted tea. I know. It's really sad as a major R.I.P. tea fan. R.I.P.T. He was a Continental Congress delegate in 1776, where, of course, he signed the Declaration, and he served on the Board of War during the Revolutionary War and provided personal financial support to the war effort. So at least he used some of that wealth for, for good. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. Really shelling out his own cash there. Exactly. He's practicing what he preaches, at least. There, right? Putting his money where his mouth is. All about these sayings today. So I do, of course, have uh, two quick fun facts for us. Um, the first one relates to that Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Not, uh, I was going to say misnomer. It's not a misnomer. It's just how he went, uh, what he went by when signing the declaration. He signed as Charles Carroll of Carrollton to distinguish from his living father and his living son, who were both Charles Carrolls, as well as apparently there were a bunch of other Charles Carrolls in Maryland. So he needed to distinguish himself. So, um, so he just chose a giant tongue twister. Reasonable. My second fun fact here 
is that he was 95 years old when he died in the year 1832. And just to get more National Treasure appreciation into this episode, think back to the beginning of the movie. He was shown to have died in 1832 and was at the time in the film quite an old man. Quite an old man, very possibly 95. Wow. Possibly. Yeah. So some good intel there. Thanks so much. It was uh it's my pleasure. So there are before we move into our speed round, I do want to make a couple of other key points about declaration signers. You'll see why in a minute. You know, the first one I think is very relevant to the film. There are two other declaration signers that are even more indirectly related to the film, but they are related. Those signers are Samuel Chase and John Adams. Why are they related to the film, you may ask? Well, Samuel Chase was a signer of the Declaration from Maryland. John Adams was a signer from Massachusetts. John Adams' wife was named Abigail Adams. Abigail? Hmm. Sound familiar? It does. Samuel Chase? Sound familiar? It also does. Because our lovely female protagonist, Abigail Chase, her name was actually derived from these two historical figures, Samuel Chase and Abigail Adams. So there you have it. Smashing that patriarchy with that name. Nice. Absolutely. And the only other thing I wanted to flag uh, quickly for everyone is that there are, of course, many other signers of the Declaration of Independence that you've probably heard of before, such as Samuel Adams from Massachusetts, John Hancock from Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, Robert Morris from Pennsylvania, or if you are like me and spent any significant amount of time in Princeton, New Jersey, John Witherspoon, who was a signer from New Jersey, you would know him because you're pretty much reminded of him wherever you go in Princeton, New Jersey. What with Witherspoon Street as like one of the main little shoppy areas in downtown or Witherspoon Grill, which is within that shoppy area. He's also buried in the Princeton Cemetery. There's lots of Witherspoon going on in Princeton. Is he related to Reese Witherspoon? I can't say that I looked this up. I'm going to guess the answer is no, but do not quote me on that. But I would like to say, Emily, when you visited me in Princeton when I was starting grad school and we went to that cemetery, we saw John Witherspoon's grave. <gasps> I'm sorry. I really like cemeteries. I think I mentioned that in a previous episode, <laughs> but it's bringing back such, such nice memories. I'm a weird person. It's okay. Deal with it. <laughs> so Aubrey thank you very much for that information with the key points about those other declaration of independent signers which I have to note here guys I'm reading the google doc that we have and every time the word signers is here I think it says singers and I honestly <laughs> thought Aubrey was gonna talk about two singers who happened to sign the declaration of independence that is not what happened but those facts were still pretty cool now ladies and gentlemen it is time for the rapid fire portion of our podcast now these people have smaller roles in the movie summer founding fathers and others just had prominent roles in early american history so aubrey <laughs> why don't you start us off with andrew jackson i will when i can stop laughing i love your i love your rapid fire voice my goodness you should be an auctioneer if the whole scientist thing doesn't work out for you Andrew Jackson going once, going twice. And okay, off. okay, sold. Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was not considered a founding father. He was only nine years old when the Declaration of Independence was signed. But he did fight in the Revolutionary War, and he was, of course, the seventh United States president. Why are we even talking about him? Well, his name makes an appearance in Ben's grandfather's story about Charles Carroll. You might recall that Charles Carroll was on his way to the White House to talk to Andrew Jackson when he was falling ill, pretty much dying, and had to pass on the clue, The Secret Lies of Charlotte, instead to Thomas Gates. And he is the reason, the fact that he was not home at the White House that day is the reason we have National Treasure. Beautiful story. And coming up next on the docket is Timothy Matlack. Aubrey, tell us more about him. I would love to. So in the movie, of course, we hear the beautiful line, Mr. Matlack can't offend. That is part of the clue on the Meerschaum pipe found within the Charlotte. That's part of that longer riddle. 
And of course, it's indicating to Ben Gates that the next clue is found on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Well, Emily, I can tell you that Timothy Maclack was the scribe for the Declaration of Independence and was also a part of the Revolutionary War. Hmm. He had a role in drafting the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, Ooh. and I would just like to say he was born in Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is just a handful of towns away from where I grew up and basically where my father grew up. Wow, look at that. Timothy Matlock coming in clutch here, Aubrey. He cannot offend, Emily. So let's move right along. What's next? Next, you are going to tell us about going once, going twice, Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry, this is something that only National Treasure superfans would know, and that is the fact that Ben Gates' dad's name is Patrick Henry Gates. Now, of course, Patrick Henry was a founding father and a governor of Virginia. He is most well known for his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech. It basically, this line ended his speech at the Second Virginia Convention in 1775 and subsequently made its way into all of our history books. Patrick Henry was a delegate to the First and Second Continental Congresses and did not sign the Constitution because he felt that it endangered states' rights. Whoa. Yes. Bombshell there. Yes, something else that's going to appear on the Real Housewives of the American Revolution. Emily, it is your turn to weigh in on the rapid-fire round. What can you tell us about Mr. Thomas Paine? Well, Thomas Paine was actually born in Norfolk, which you may or may not know is in Great Britain. So he came to the colonies in 1774 with the help of our good old friend, Benjamin Franklin. And he also wrote Common Sense, which, Aubrey, you may or may not remember. Well, you probably do remember because you have a better memory than I. That (laughs) in the movie... Patrick Gates actually hides a wad of $100 bills in the back of his copy of Common Sense, which Ben grabbed from the bookshelf at his father's house, stealing a thing as he went, no big deal. And him and Abigail and Riley used this money to pay for their clothes at the Urban Outfitters with those really weird dressing rooms where you can see over the top. Still, I don't understand it, but anyway... Common Sense. So Common Sense, I'm sure we've all learned about it in our history classes, was a great catalyst for the demand of independence from Great Britain that really helped to lead us into the Revolutionary War. Excellent. And our final rapid-fire installment is the one and only Robert Newman. <laughs> Funny that you say one and only, Aubrey, because when I went to search for this man— There are other people named Robert Newman that exist, and some of them are actors and come (laughs) up earlier in Google searches than the Robert Newman that has to do with the American Revolution. So I had to amend my search a little bit. So at the end of the movie, when we, as we talked about before, our protagonists need to really ditch Ian because he's going to shoot them when they're in the antechamber before the treasure room. They got to get rid of Ian, so they got to make up a fake clue. Ben's dad says that the lantern on the wall is the clue. One lantern hung by Robert Newman in Boston, which, of course, is the fake clue because he hung two lanterns. Tell us more, Emily. So Robert Newman actually got this you know, position as the one to hang the lanterns by uh, virtue of the fact that he was a sexton at Old North Church. Yes, that word that you heard is sexton. What a sexton is, and I had to look it up, is an officer of the church that is responsible for building maintenance and such. Larger churches have multiple sextons. You know, he was the only sexton at Old North Church. He had some keys that allowed him into the building, so it made sense. He was the one, right, we said, that hung the lanterns in the church steeple. Now, interestingly, he lived with his mother during the time of the American Revolution. Now, his mother was actually renting part of her house out to British officers on that faithful night. So he had to sneak out in the middle of the night undetected by the British officers, not only to get out of his own house, but then he had to get to the church undetected. Many layers of undetection going on for our pal Robert Newman here in order to send the signal. Now, he actually worked with two other men to do this. Thomas Bernard, who kept watch outside the church, and Captain John Pulling Jr., 
who actually carried the signal lanterns with him. I'm assuming he carried one and Robert Newman carried the other since, as we established, there were two lanterns. Now, Robert Newman actually got arrested the next day because of the fact that that thing that helped him get into the church, the fact that he had the keys, was the thing that helped him get into the church, which the British were very well aware of. So because he was one of the people that had the keys, he actually got arrested. However, he was then released when he went and gave up his old friend here, Captain Pulling, and he told them that he had given the keys to Captain Pulling. Now, fortunately, and I was unclear whether this was planned or not, or whether this was a true stab in the back, but fortunately, <laughs> Captain Pulling had already fled Boston. But I do believe, as we've been saying, this would be part of a definite storyline on The Real Housewives of the American Revolution. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Emily. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this more or less wraps up our discussion on the Founding Fathers and their role in the Declaration of Independence and their role in the American Revolution. Really taking a look at a bunch of folks who either directly or indirectly are mentioned in the National Treasure movie. So, Aubrey, as is your role, why don't you tell us what our listeners have to look forward to in two weeks from today or whenever yes. they're listening to this podcast because they may not <laughs> listen to it on the Wednesday it is released. Yes. Yeah, so the next episode that we'll be releasing, something you're going to want to come back for, is another look at the production side of National Treasure. So we took a look at history today. Let's go back to production next time around with something I'm very excited for, Em. <laughs> We're going to discuss the casting of the National Treasure film. And I'm really excited about this. Just a little teaser. We're going to talk not only about the people who were cast in our roles, our, our famous Nick Cage, Justin Bartha, Diane Kruger, and friends, but we will discuss anything that we can dig up related to how the casting process worked, if anyone else was considered for these roles, as well as if we could ever envision anyone else playing these roles, which might end up being important, as those of you who follow the Disney Plus universe might have learned that Disney Plus has announced they're working on creating a straight-to-Disney Plus TV series based on National Treasure with a younger cast. So who mm. could we envision in the roles of, of that younger cast? So I think this is going to be a really good one, Em. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, Aubrey. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, why don't you remind everyone where they're going to find us before we sign off today? So you can find us on the social media platforms at NT Hunt Podcast. That is Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow. Engage with us. We love talking to you guys. We'll be posting some of those pictures that we mentioned. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this and all of our other episodes. You can find us on your preferred podcasting platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. We are National Treasure Hunt and please subscribe, rate, review us. Tell us how we're doing. Let us know. We hope you've enjoyed this interesting look at history from the perspective of National Treasure once again. And maybe you learned a thing or two. Regardless, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.